Father, we are so thankful for your tremendous love for us that you, while we were yet sinners, sent Christ to die for us. That you loved us so much you gave your one and only Son. And Father, we thank you that through your Son Jesus there is true life. There is forgiveness of sins. And there is joy and peace and rest. Father, I pray as we look into your word today that you would open our hearts. That we would, if need be, have our minds changed. That uh, those who need to turn from sin would do so. And that all of us would rely on your son Jesus. And experience that true rest that only comes from a real relationship with him. Father, I thank you for your word, blessed as it goes out today. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, the Lord makes it clear through his word that all men are in need of salvation. And within that, within the context of all mankind in need of salvation, there are two types of people in need of salvation. Uh, there are, as we see in Romans chapter 1, the irreligious, uh, those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, who, who are idolatrous, as worship the self or creation, whatever it might be. Uh, those who could care less about uh, God, uh, they're in need of salvation. And there are also those who are religious, uh, but yet have not yielded their hearts to Christ. Uh, those who are self-righteous or phonies, whatever it might be, hypocrites on their way to hell. We see that in Romans chapter 2. Those, uh, the Jews of, uh, Paul's day were irreligious, were, were, excuse me, were, were, thought they were better than the irreligious, but on the inside they were just the same. They were guilty of the same things. They just had an external veneer of, of godliness. Now, apart from Christ, whether you are religious or irreligious, you are in sin. And God's word declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we fit into one of those two categories, either those who could care less and are still in their sins or those who go through the motions of being religious and are still in their sins. Everyone in this world is from one of those categories until they come to Christ. Now we know that sin brings death. Ezekiel chapter 18, the Lord God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins will die. Now, if you are still in your sins, you are separated from God. You are separated from the life of God. You live in the context, as we all did beforehand, of spiritual death. And sin is wearisome. And your soul, I guarantee, is not at true rest. There is no true peace for your soul. Isaiah 53, verse 20, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up Refuge in mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There's no peace. And I guarantee if you are still in your sins, having not been saved by Christ yet, your soul is not at rest. Now the wonderful thing is that that is not God's will for you. It is not his will that any should perish. He desires all to enter into salvation, rest in Jesus Christ, and to continue in that rest while we abide in the person of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we finish up our break between books, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11. Would you turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 11? We'll be looking at verses 20 to 30, where we're going to find out how we can find true rest for our souls. Now, we went through the book of Matthew uh, nine years ago here, so you may or may not remember the context, but I want to share a couple bits of the context for you to bring us up to where we are in chapter 11. Matthew is about uh, the Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Matthew is about God the Son who took on human flesh to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came to his own, the Jewish people. Those who would name the name of the Lord... And yet the same Jews were in sin. They were sitting in darkness. And Jesus, graciously having had the way prepared for him by John the Baptist, called upon the people to repent. To repent of their sin because the kingdom was at hand. The king was at hand. 
And Jesus taught and preached kingdom truth. We see that in chapters 5 through 7. And he affirmed his person and his work with the miraculous in chapters 8 through 9. And the Jews believed that they were the Lord's, but yet they were not saved. And Jesus revealed to them what a true kingdom citizen looked like, what a true, uh, uh, truly saved person looked like, and affirming that call for repentance and faith in him. And he made it clear that the only way to salvation is through the narrow gate. That's the person of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And then in chapter 10, we see the heart of the Savior manifest as he instructs his disciples uh, to go out to a multitude of lost souls, those without a shepherd. And in chapter 11, Jesus affirms the ministry of John the Baptist, and he begins to transition from the open preaching of the gospel to condemnation for those who have rejected the message that he has preached for almost three years at this point. And instead, at this point, he begins to reveal the face of the unrepentant, the face of those who have heard the message and have not responded. The religiously deluded who are playing games with God, trying to come to him on their own terms. And we have the resulting maligning of the Lord and those who would bring his word, thus the rejection of God and his word. Yet as we're going to see today, although man is steeped in rejection and on his way to hell, the Lord Jesus Christ continues to graciously offer salvation to all. That leads us to our passage in which I believe we're going to find the answer to how we can find rest for our souls. And we're going to see the Lord's condemnation of those who do not repent. But in the same breath, we're going to see that God is the one who saves and the offer to anyone who is weary and desires to have rest for their souls. Again, Matthew chapter 11, and I'm going to begin in verse 20, and I'm going to read through our passage first, and then we'll look at it. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Capernaum, will not be exalted to the heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And at that time, Jesus answered and said... I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for this, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Tremendous passage in which we see the reproof of those who do not believe in God's sovereignty over salvation and then the offer to all to come to Jesus Christ. So how can we find rest for our souls? Well, first of all, we need to be warned. We do need to be warned that we are not to reject the truth that God has revealed concerning Christ or we will be eternally judged. Notice Jesus condemns the unrepentant cities who saw so much and yet did not respond. Verse 20. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not Repent. Now remember the context. Earlier in chapter 11, Jesus had responded to John the Baptist's inquiry through his disciples after they left. Uh, and, he, and, and after they left, he began to address the multitudes. And it's at this point he vindicated John. And then after that, he began to reproach this current generation, which was in unbelief. The generation that had rejected the message of repentance through John and Jesus. 
And if you were with us when we studied Matthew previously, Jesus likens the current generation that he had shared the word with as spoiled children. He likened them to spoiled children who get upset when someone won't play the game that they wanted to play. Look back a little bit to verse 16 of chapter 11. But what to what shall I compare this? But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like a child sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children, like children sitting out in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, "We played the flute for you, and you did not dance." We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For neither for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, he is a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So Jesus has condemned the current generation that has rejected him later on we'll see although they accept him when he comes into the city they will be yelling crucify him then verse 20 we have the phrase then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent he begins to reproach or reprimand the cities in which most of his miracles were done and which were the cities in which most of his miracles were done They were the cities in the Galilee region, which we're going to see in a moment. Those cities in which Jesus healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, cleansed lepers, forgave sins, and raised the dead. Remember, we saw so much of the miraculous back in chapters 8 and 9. And indeed, the miraculous we see throughout Scripture confirms the teaching and preaching and message of Jesus Christ. The miraculous confirmed that he was who he said he was and that what he said was true. Remember, we saw that this section between chapters 4 and 9 were bracketed with these statements. Look back at chapter 4, verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics. paralytics. can't say that word today, but you know what it is. (laughs) Um, And he healed them. He healed them. And then look up at chapter 9, verse 35. Again, if you remember we went through Matthew, those are the brackets. You have the Sermon on the Mount in the middle of that, the teaching of the king. And then you have those miraculous things affirming that. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus was going about all the cities, all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You see, God had come in human flesh, and his message was to repent because he was at hand. The kingdom was at hand. You cannot have a relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords while you are in your sin. You must repent. You must change your mind about your sinfulness and agree with God and turn to God for forgiveness of sins. And Jesus was preaching that and he was affirming it with the miraculous. And these cities had seen so much of the miraculous. Verse 20, back in our passage in chapter 11. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. The issue is repentance, and repentance is simply a change of mind, which, if it is genuine, will accompany a change of behavior. If you change your mind, you're going to change your actions. Now, some people think they've changed their minds, but they really haven't. They're still thinking the same way they thought before. Repentance is a change of mind concerning one's sinfulness. I am a sinner. God declares I'm a sinner. I realize I am sinful, that I need a Savior, that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior. Now, they did not repent of their sins. We see in Scripture that repentance is a turning from sin to God based on a change of mind. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God 
from idols to serve a living and true God. You see, we are captive to sin. We can't stop sinning. If you are not saved, you can't stop. You can maybe uh, self-righteously stop for a time, but your heart is still corrupted. And we need to turn to the living God in humility, understanding our need for a Savior and our sinfulness and calling upon Him. You see, Scripture is declaring that all men everywhere must repent. Look at Acts chapter 17. You know why? Because we're going to see there's a day of judgment. You see, God does not want us to be judged eternally and punished forever. He does not desire and take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they would turn. But yet he is holy and he will do so if one rejects. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. This is Paul speaking to the wise guys, those uh, Greeks. And he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to, declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. You need to change your mind about your sinfulness and your need of a Savior because there is judgment coming. You need to change your mind about who Jesus is and trust in Him. To turn from your sin to God. And notice he says that all men everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There is a judgment day. And therefore, God says you need to turn. You need to turn from your sins to Christ for salvation or you're going to be judged. God is a gracious God, but he is a righteous judge also. We see in Luke 24 that repentance is a mandatory element for forgiveness. We are saved by faith, but I can't have genuine faith in the Savior unless I recognize in my mind what I am being saved from, that I am a sinner and I turn to Him for that salvation. Luke chapter 24, look at that for a second. Luke chapter 24, and this is after Jesus had risen from the dead. He's walking with those dejected disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he shares with them. And then he comes back and shares again with them back in Jerusalem with the other uh, disciples. Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. From the dead, the third day. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's a recognition of one's sinfulness. There's a humility, whether it's religious sinfulness some people think they're fine because they go to church. They, 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 they do the things that God says in the Bible. They do those things. But if you have not repented of your sins as a child, humbled yourself as we will see, you haven't repented yet. You're not saved yet. And the Lord has declared that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Now the word reveals it is God who leads us to repentance. We see that in Romans chapter 2 and 2 Timothy 2.25. Romans chapter 2, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, you see the reality of how great and wonderful and kind he is towards us, leads you to repentance. We know in 2 Timothy 2, 26, that if perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Throughout Scripture, the preaching of the Word of God is, is clear for the sinners to repent Jesus began the book of Mark, repent and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. We see that back in chapter 4 of, our, of Matthew, verse 17. I'll read it for you. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, God is a gracious God who burst on the scene of mankind in the midst of sin and death. The righteous one, Jesus, came upon in the midst of darkness and shined and the message he had was, turn, turn, repent. Let me ask you, are your sins forgiven? 
Have you truly seen yourself rightly? Have you had a change of mind concerning your personal sinfulness and culpability before God? Have you seen things God's way from His Word, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we are all in need of salvation, that we have all fallen short? Do you see yourself rightly? Have you turned in that understanding then to Jesus the Lord God who took on human flesh and died for your sins and rose from the dead. Have you called upon Jesus for salvation? Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But you've got to call upon him in truth and in righteousness, understanding your sinfulness and understanding he's the Savior. Well, what happens if we don't repent? What happens if we hear the message over and over again? We don't repent. We see the miraculous. What do I mean? We see those around us who are truly saved, have truly been changed. What happens if we see that and we don't repent? What happens? Back to our passage in chapter 11. And then he began, verse 22, reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that had occurred in, had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. It's a pretty sobering statement. The term woe is a statement of verbal condemnation and impending judgment. You don't want the Lord God saying, woe to you. These cities, Corazon and Bethsaida, they were cities in Galilee in which Jesus had done many miracles. And obviously, in the context of the other Gospels and this book in Matthew, the repentance is is geared on on the context of his teaching and preaching. We see that. And then the miracles affirmed. They heard the truth. They saw the miraculous that affirmed what he said was true and who he was. They didn't repent. We saw it in chapter 20 because they did not repent. End of verse 20, excuse me, chapter 11. And we have an explanation, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician coastal cities in what we would call Lebanon today. They were known for their materialistic, worldly wickedness. You could say, you could say, uh, woe to you, San Francisco and Los Angeles and Portland and Vancouver. Woe to you. They were materialistically wealthy and they were godless. They were godless. They were self-sufficient. And we see uh, God's attitude towards Tyre and Sidon. You can read it in Ezekiel 26 and 27. They were cities in which the Israelites who claimed to follow the Lord but weren't would say, look at those wicked sinners over there in Tyre and Sidon. And they were right, but they were hypocritically right, by the way. And so the Lord says, woe to you, Corazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, those Galilean cities. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, that's that wealthy area that was wicked, on the coast, which had occurred in you. If they had seen what you saw from Jesus, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes is, is, is an outward, external uh, uh, showing of remorse and, and repentance. Very interesting statement. They would have repented long ago, but they didn't. They didn't. Neither did Corazon and Bethsaida. But notice what he says in verse 22. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, I don't want to get into the hypothetical arguments that we could ponder till the Lord comes, uh, why Jesus didn't give them more revelation back then that they would have repented. That's not the point. The point is God in human flesh came among these cities. He was there, and you saw the tremendously miraculous deeds God did in light of the preaching and teaching to turn and repent and believe the gospel, and you didn't repent. If they would have seen the same thing, they would have turned, and they are pretty darn wicked people, and they would have turned. The point Jesus is making is you are actually more wicked than they are. You are more wicked. 
And guess what? Your judgment's going to be more. It's going to be more tolerable for them the day of judgment. Don't let anyone tell you all sin is the same. The only way sin is the same is because any sin brings, you, brings death. But within that, there are worse sins and less sins. There is differing judgment based on one's response, how sinful their response is towards Jesus Christ. He says it will be more tolerable. They're still going to judgment, but it's going to be more tolerable. It's going to be more tolerable. You see, they had the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in their midst, and they were hardened, and their hearts had been hardened. And God allowed it to be hardened, by the way. It's a scary thought. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Later on, we had the disciples asking, why do you speak in parables? Why? Why? And the disciples came, verse uh, 10, and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For, and here's the explanation, the heart of this people has become dull. It wasn't dull before, but it is dull now. It's hardened. And with their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have what? They have closed their eyes. They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. It's a scary thought to recognize that God will allow you to be hardened if you reject the truth. If you close your ears and your eyes to perceiving the truth of God, he will allow you to be hardened. And Israel had gotten to that point where God is proclaiming judgment upon this current generation and those in those cities. He says, nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre, verse 22, and Sidon in the day of judgment. Folks, there is a day of judgment. There is a day of judgment. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, we see back in verse uh, 14. And whoever does not receive you, that's speaking of his disciples he sent out, nor heed your words as you go out of the house, shake off the dust off your feet. By the way, some principles here about evangelism. Sometimes we don't stay there forever. We do shake the dust off our feet. He says here, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Those who reject the truth of God, the day of judgment. Look up at chapter 12, verse 35. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of of judgment for by your words you shall be justified and by your words you shall be condemned Solomon makes it clear in Ecclesiastes the conclusion when all has been said and done Ecclesiastes 12 I'll read it for you is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act into judgment everything which is hidden whether good or evil we saw in Acts 17 that God is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge to the man Jesus, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. We know in Hebrews chapter 10 it is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. You see, God is a just God, and there will be an accounting. There's a day of judgment. And here we see that, nevertheless, I say to you, it should be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. You've had so much revelation concerning Jesus Christ and you have rejected it. You have not repented. You're in deep trouble. Woe to you, Jesus says. Now Jesus continues. Notice back in chapter 11. 
to reprove the city in which he had based his Galilean ministry. This is where he was based out of when he was in Galilee and doing the ministry there. Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. It's very interesting. Jesus is using the examples of the most wicked cities around Israel and saying, you are worse for rejecting Christ. You are worse for rejecting the truth that was in your midst. He says, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Amazing statement. Jesus is saying that the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, the city God destroyed with fire and brimstone, if it had seen what they had seen in Capernaum, they would have repented. It would have remained to this day. That's the implication. It would have repented. But notice because of the great spiritual pride. Here we got spiritual pride. It's deadly. It's deadly to think you are godly apart from a relationship with God. Spiritual pride. And you, Capernaum, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. You think you're going to heaven. But you're going to Hades. And you will be judged. That's the implication. It will not be tolerable for you. You see, Hades is the place where you go if you die when you reject Christ. It is a place of temporal torment for the unrepentant, for those who have not trusted Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 16. You see, if you were to die today and you did not know Christ, your soul would go to Hades, your body would go in the grave. Temporal place of torment. Luke chapter 16. You know, I hear people saying, we want to hear more of the words of Jesus. Well, this is the words of Jesus. You have to understand the bad before you can receive the good. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man who and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died and was buried. And and in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. You know, God is a just God. Sin is a big deal. It's so big that God sent his son to die for our sins. It's a serious thing. We know that if you reject Christ, you go to Hades. And if you don't repent, you go to Hades, and then you go to the to the great white throne judgment. You can read Revelation 20, and then death and Hades. In a sense, there's a resurrection of the of the unjust, and you're thrown into the lake of fire. Capernaum, Capernaum, you think you're going to heaven, but you're on your way to Hades. And this is coming from the one who has the keys to death and Hades, Jesus Christ, because you haven't repented you haven't changed your mind about your sinfulness and their sinfulness was a religious sinfulness they thought they were clean but they were dirty with sin friend you've heard much about christ you've heard much about your sin i exhort you to repent before it's too late you may think you're on your way to heaven but you're playing games with god you don't like his message because it calls upon you to forsake your sin and turn to christ just that understanding that you don't like it is sin Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. It's, 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 even by my attitude towards that, I'm sinful. Save me, Lord Jesus. Because you can't fix that. Only God can. Just acknowledge it. Acknowledge you're a sinner and turn to Jesus. He'll change your heart. He'll change your attitude. He'll change you. He'll save you. Now, unfortunately, we see, unfortunately, in many places, repentance isn't even shared anymore. A lot of churches just, uh, you know, raise your hand, Try Jesus, whatever it might be. Implicit in trust in Jesus Christ is a turning from sin and trusting in him for forgiveness from that sin. What about you? What would Jesus say about you today? Would he say, woe to you, so-and-so? 
If those in Sodom had heard as much as you have heard today, they would have repented. And you so-and-so, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you? You shall descend to Hades. But I proclaim to you today, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God took on human flesh and he bore our sins in our place. And if you're willing to acknowledge it, he will save you. So first of all, we need to recognize that we must repent. We must repent. There's judgment coming. Secondly, we need to realize that salvation is a sovereign work of the living God. Look at verse 25. Very interesting statement that comes at this point. And at that time, at that time, what we just read, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven. Back in chapter 11, verse 25. Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent, and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for this, for thus it was well pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This sounds really out of place, doesn't it? All of a sudden we have this statement that seems to be totally disconnected to what Jesus has just been declaring. But I don't think it is. Because I think it sheds light into the complete sovereignty of God over salvation. You can't save yourself. God is the one who saves and he does it his way. It says, at that time... In the middle of this condemnation of the cities and the generation that hadn't repented, he says, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. It's interesting, this term praise here is a different word than what we would see other times for praise. It's ex homo legio, which means basically to to, to confess or, or to outwardly profess. I outwardly profess in agreement this truth. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, what's interesting is we have him confessing and professing. But we also see some added insight. Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We have not only is he outwardly confessing, he's rejoicing, which seems odd at this time. He's rejoicing. He's just condemned people for their unbelief, and he's rejoicing. We're going to see that it's not what you think, I believe. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. At that very time, very important, both authors, Luke and and Matthew, at that time, at that very time, the same time he is condemning. At that time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou dost hide these things from the wise and intelligent and reveal, dost reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for as well-pleasing in thy sight, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and whom the Father is except the Son, and whom, to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. He is outwardly praising and rejoicing. Why or what for? Two things that the Father hid and the Father revealed. Two things. Two things. Well, first of all, we gain insight into what pleases God and brings him joy. Very interesting. And very simply, the hiding or concealing of revelation concerning Christ to those who are wise and intelligent. What is that speaking of? The wise and intelligent are obviously those who are wise and intelligent in their own eyes. They are spiritually prideful. They think they've got it down. They're not humble. They're self-sufficient. They understand. They think they've got it themselves. And God praises, or Lord Jesus praises the Father that it's been hidden from those people. Those who are wise and intelligent in themselves. If you think you're a spiritual smarty pants, you got it all figured out, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. They, they think they understand apart from repentance. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, 
yet is not washed from his filthiness. And God takes pleasure in hiding his truth from you if you are that way. But he also takes pleasure and joy in revealing it, as he says here, to babes. To babes. The term babes means infant. If you think of an infant or a small child, a baby, they are totally dependent. That's a characteristic we think of. They will die if you leave them on their own. They are completely dependent. They have no opinions of their own that they are pressing on anyone. Maybe they're crying. I know that from the fall. But uh, the reality is, the point that's being shared here is they are totally dependent. They are self. They, are, they have no self-sufficiency. Turn to Matthew chapter 18 for a second. Matthew 18. So you have the wise and intelligent God praises and rejoices that they don't get the message because in their pride uh, is, 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 is in the way. But he praises that babes or infants are, is revealed to them. Matthew 18, verse 3, and, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a ch- this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You have to be like a child. Children just accept what their parents say. There's no argument. They just believe it. There's a humility to a child. And you have to be like that to be saved. Yes, Lord, I believe what you say. I take it completely. I take it completely. So God is pleased to not let the prideful and the arrogant to see the truth. The spiritually prideful, by the way, in this context. He is pleased that they don't get it. And yet he is also pleased that those who are like children, totally dependent, respond to the gospel. Respond. You can read this in another time. At 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 talks about the word of the cross being foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on to share, Paul goes on to share how he's going to destroy the wisdom of, of, of the wise. The wisdom of, of, and that's basically at the core of man's pride. So then I, underst- I think I understand what Jesus is saying at this point. But why would he break in and rejoice openly? Why for everyone to hear? Why would he do it that everyone could hear this? Notice God's not going to reveal himself to you unless you humble yourself. You can read the word all day long. You can read the Bible. You can be in church. You can do it unless you are humbled in your heart concerning your sinfulness and your willingness to hear what he has to say. That we would be babes dependent. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? The spiritually bankrupt. Let me ask you this, friend. Have you humbled yourself before the living God, acknowledged that you don't know anything and he knows everything? That anything from yourself is not worthy of being trusted in or looked at, but but that everything he says is true? Have you dependently come before him like a baby in total need? If you're unwilling to do so, God will allow you to be hardened, and that will be all the way to your destruction, which he just takes no pleasure in. But he rejoices that you do not come to him in the context of spiritual pride. Only in humility. Well, notice he publicly affirms that he is sovereign over all things, including whom he desires to be saved. Notice this is very interesting. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. This statement has been troubling for some, maybe the wise and intelligent among us who are unwilling to be dependent like babes. It's been troubling. But he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Everything, all authority has been given to Christ. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And we see that Christ has authority in that middle of 27. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Very interesting. Wow. The Father does not reveal himself to the Son, nor does the Son reveal himself to the Father. They know each other already. They don't reveal to each other. 
He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father. So they know each other already. There's no revelation needed there, but then yet we goes, he goes on and moves that. And also to those whom the Son wills to reveal him. Did you catch that? It's how we come to know God in an intimate manner. It's through Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. It's up to Jesus in his sovereign will whom he reveals God to. He says, and to anyone whom the Son wills or desires to reveal him. Now, folks, sometimes we want to argue with the reality that God is the one who chooses who gets saved. We go, wow, that doesn't seem fair. But there are passages in Scripture that show that that's exactly what happens. But yet it's way beyond that. And I warn you not to build your theology on one truth in light of other truths. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. John chapter 6, verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, Jesus says. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. Acts 13.48 And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Of the Lord, as many and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The reality is, God chooses who He wants to save, and it strikes us wrongly because it hits us at the core of our pride. We believe we should be the ones who have the choice, yet we are not God. Romans chapter 9. Now, I'm not going to get into this debate about election because it's true. But we need to see it rightly, and I see a lot of people see it wrongly. Don't make the mistake of making this one truth the underpinning of your theology, or you will ruin and distort other scriptures. Because although election is true, God beckons the will of those who are dead in sin through the powerfully alive gospel, even those who would reject. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. You see, we like to take things and put them in little boxes, but we can't do that. In spite of the truth that God is the one who decides and who he reveals himself to, we see that God is gracious and he has manifested himself. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Rather that he should turn from his ways and live. You know, Jesus says, or Lord, the psalmist says, precious in his sight of the death of his godly ones. He takes no pleasure in those who have not repented. Look down at verse 31 of Ezekiel 18. Cast away from your, from you, cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why shall you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, because therefore repent and live. The offer of salvation is genuine to all. Whosoever believes will be saved. And yet everyone is responsible for their response to the gospel. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not ours. Humble yourself. Believe the truth concerning his sovereignty over salvation and our responsibility no matter who we are to respond whoever will call upon the name of the lord will be saved you know it's i find it so interesting in scripture where you have the most most uh clear portions concerning god's sovereignty over salvation romans 9 in romans 10 you have whoever will call where we have here the most clear statement whoever the lord desires to reveal then right after that you have come to me. 
all who are weary and heavy laden. The offer, the free offer to everyone. Notice the free offer back in our passage in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Not just you who are supposedly chosen. He says all. He says all. If you recognize you are weary and heavy laden, come. Come. And I will give you rest. He just got done praising the Father that he has hidden his truth from those who are wise and intelligent and revealed it to babes and that he is sovereign over everything, that he is the one who chooses whom he reveals the Father to. And he says, come to me, gracious, wonderful Savior of the world. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's inviting those who are weary and heavy laden. The term weary speaks of great physical toil, strong exertion, hard labor, becoming weary, emotional weariness, great difficulty. And the tense is that of those who are continually weary. Folks, sin is wearying. Whether it's the weariness of, seek, weariness of seeking one's own desires, religiously or irreligiously. Whether you're sinning for your own pleasure, no care of God. Whether you're sinning religiously, trying to follow him your own way. Either way, you're going to be weary. And then notice, in also in this invitation, he says, heavy laden. The turn speaks of carrying heavy burdens. And it speaks of something that's already happened, but yet it still affects you now. You've got a heavy weight, and you are still burdened by it. Here I believe Jesus is obviously pointing to the false religious systems that the Jews had been voluntarily weighed down by the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees that affected them to the day, the do's and don'ts of this and that rather than a real relationship with Jesus which enables you then to see his desires rightly and to follow him in obedience. We've seen that around here. People will say, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do this. No, no, no. All that brings us heavy burdens. The religious put burdens on people. Luke chapter 11:42 Jesus says but woe to you lawyers as well for you weigh down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves are not even willing to touch burdens with one of your fingers all this religious stuff you can look at Matthew 23 it talks about the Pharisees and they lay up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders heavy laden whether it's Judaism Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, we even got Judaism seeping into the church these days, by the way. Whether it's Judaism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Catholic, Seventh-day Adventists, dead denominations, any works-related religious system, if, you're, if you follow that, you are going to be heavy laden. Heavy laden. Because your salvation is up to you and what you do. And that's impossible. Because only God saves and Jesus says, come to me, all who recognize they are weary and recognize they are heavy laden. And notice what he says emphatically in the Greek text, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the one who gives rest. The term rest speaks of a cessation of effort and thus refreshment. Think about it. You're doing something that's very difficult, and you stop, you cease, and you're refreshed, Right? He says, I will give you rest. You see, it's Jesus who gives rest. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's not believing a set of theological points. It's not believing a certain statement of things that you must say to be saved. It is believing in Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, the Lord is gracious. He offers salvation to all. To all. And notice he says, he continues, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. He's just said basically, salvation is impossible by yourself, only I bring it about. And he says, come to me. Isn't that wonderful? He says, take my yoke upon you. What's he talking about here? The, the term yoke 
spoke of really a, a piece of wood that would be placed on an animal, be attached to a wagon, a plow, or a mill. It would also speak of that which controls, but yet it also came to speak of that which was associated with, with uh, following someone's, someone's teaching or submission. So if an animal had a yoke on it, it was submitting to that yoke. And if you submitted to the yoke of a teacher, you were submitting to their teaching. He says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke. He says, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You see, Jesus doesn't lay heavy burdens on you. He doesn't lay any burden on you. He frees you from the burdens. Take my yoke, my teaching. Take my truth. Take it upon you. And he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This is the only place in Scripture you'll find Jesus describing himself in this manner. He's gentle. He's gentle and humble in heart. That's our God. He's a gracious, gentle, humble God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And what shall happen here? And you shall find rest for your souls. That's the inside. That's the inner man. Some of you are burdened by your religiousness. You're trying to do this and this and this and this. And Jesus says, come to me. Take my yoke. His way is, is burdensome, is not burdensome, excuse me. Notice what he says. He explains, well, we're going to find, and you shall find rest for your souls. You see, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is impossible to serve him. It is impossible to know him. And it, the burden is too heavy. Some of you may be trying to follow Jesus on your own, and the yoke is too heavy. You actually got to come to Jesus. And then God provides everything you need, and you'll find rest for your souls. It's when we believe in Jesus Christ, coming to him in repentance and faith, submitting ourselves to his yoke, we find rest. Have you submitted yourself? Your way, Lord Jesus, I'm just going to do it your way. He says, notice in verse 34, he explains, my yoke is easy, my yoke is light. When you're truly following Jesus, it is easy and light. It's only burdensome when we got sin in the way. It's no trouble for Jesus to do anything. He's God, and you follow him. You trust in him. You rely on him. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Now, I'm not saying we don't get tired. Scripture reveals that. I'm not saying we don't get exhausted. I'm not saying we don't have trials. But I'm saying when you walk with Christ by faith, submitting and obeying, learning from him through his word, you find rest for your soul. Because Jesus doesn't call upon you to do anything that he will not empower you and strengthen you to do. He is gentle and humble in heart. His load is light, and thus his yoke is easy. Therefore, his commandments are not burdensome when you trust Jesus. Let me share this in one other passage, 1 John 5. You see, when you're just willing to let go and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, the burdens are lifted, by the way. He's faithful. You can rest in him. You can have peace and joy. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Right before Revelation, getting close to Revelation. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. That's speaking of the, his, that's speaking of the church, by the way. Notice what he says. By this we know that we love the children of God. That's how you can know if we love one another. Say, I love the body of Christ, I do. Well, here's how you can know. When we love God and observe his commandments. You see, if I see him as more important than anything else, and I, then I'm going to obey his word towards you. And that's real love for you, you see. And notice what he says. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Not his commands, not the Ten Commandments, but his commands. And notice what he says. And his commandments are not burdensome. If you don't know Jesus and you're not walking with him, or you know him and you're not walking with him, his commands are burdensome. Because you're doing it yourself. But if you trust him, his, his yoke is light. His, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Lord Jesus, I trust you to enable me to do this. We don't get, it's not that we don't get weary and tired, but we have rest in our souls. Rest for our souls. Brother and sister, have you been burdened lately by what Jesus calls you to do?
Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's uh, in, in, out, out in, in the world, whatever it might be. Come to Jesus. Trust in him. Rely on him. He'll enable you to do it. You'll find rest for your soul. For your soul. Now, your body may get worn out. All of us are, right? But you'll have rest for your soul. So how can we find true rest? First of all, we need to heed the warning that if we don't repent, there is judgment. If you don't repent, you will never find rest for your soul. You will have eternal punishment. You will never be in rest. Secondly, we need to recognize salvation is from God. He's the one who does it. So then we need to look at salvation from his perspective and do what he says, which is come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. If you want to be saved, listen to what Jesus has to say and turn to him and trust in him. And lastly, are we submitting to his yoke? Or have we placed a yoke on ourselves that is not from him? Have we taken his word and tried to obey it ourselves, whatever it might be? Are we trying to do things apart from truly trusting in Jesus? Brothers and sisters, his yoke is easy. His load is light. Analyze yourselves this week. Is this true for me? Or am I burdened by what the Lord wants me to do? If you are... Maybe there's sin in the way, whatever it might be. Certainly sin by doing it ourselves. Confess it. Lord God, I trust you. I believe what you say. I'm going to come to you, Jesus. And I'm going to find a rest for my soul. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your word. And I pray for anyone here who is not in rest, Lord God, who's in their sins, that they would come to your son, Jesus. You take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather they would repent and live. I pray they would see themselves rightly and humble themselves like a child, whether it's someone here who's very religious or someone who isn't. And Lord, I pray for those of us who know you that we would continually rely on Christ, that we would submit to his yoke, which is easy. We would learn from him, learn from Jesus, your son that we would rely on you, we would trust in you, we would rely on your son Jesus, we would abide in him. Lord, I pray for anybody here who's a true believer who's struggling with obeying you, struggling with doing what they know is right. I pray that they would come to Jesus, trust in him and find rest for their souls. I pray for that. Thank you for your word. I pray this in your son's precious name.